welcome viewers to episode 2 of economically yours today we'll be talking about uh, where india will be in the next 5 years and hence we have uh, tried to come up with something similar like india at 80 and uh, to speak about that we have a fund manager uh, who has braved the 2008 crisis but also delivered 55% returns in fy17 he's also the manager who has had an illustrious career spanning 15 years and also the fund manager who was ranked the best between 2012 and 2014 by asia edge in hong kong with all due respect uh, charmi and i would like to welcome mr navin chandramohan the founder and principal fund manager at itas capital who has also placed a high conviction bet by gracing our platform today so welcome to economically yours thanks a lot darshan and thanks charmi for having me today so welcome uh, mr navin hi so given that introduction i would just like to you know um, would like to ask you how was that experience uh, when you braved the first crash like in 2008 uh, you were part of uh, lehman brothers so if you could just uh, take us through the experience like uh, what was going on or what all just happened sure darshan i think that memory will always stick by me till i hit the graveyard right because these are things that uh, you don't want to experience but when you are in the middle of it you actually uh, thank your stars that you were lucky enough to go through it uh, i think the biggest takeaway for me was not just the bankruptcy but seeing human emotions live because uh, to be honest i was 3 years into my career uh, so i would uh, i i i would honestly say mba doesn't teach you much and uh, i entered lehman brothers at the beginning of a bull market when i say a bull market i was an intern when i started at lehman brothers and i kid you not the kind of uh, you're from a middle class background in india uh, done your engineering done your mba graduated maybe with top honors so you think you're good and the market validates you by treating you in the middle of a bull market with all these lavishes so you think you're worth everything right and suddenly everything comes falling down the important thing during that bankruptcy was like i said september 15 2008 it was a monday morning when lehman brothers filed for bankruptcy september 12 2008 uh, was a friday morning uh, so i was uh, one of the uh, senior analysts a vp there uh, in the investment business for uh, uh, for lehman for uh, uh asia ex japan i was in hong kong back then so uh my boss's boss who was on the board came down to the trading floor lehman i distinctly remember was trading at 4 dollars 30 cents uh in the equity markets uh a year prior to put it into perspective september 15 2007 we were at 96 dollars so that was that was the difference that i'm talking about right and he came out and said uh, we will survive Uh, this is the best opportunity of a lifetime that i'm seeing and uh, when i'm and i'm talking about who's talking about this he was on the board of lehman just to put it into perspective right so we're not talking about someone who's just uh, a senior enough managing director uh, so he knows what technically you would assume he knows what is happening and he said this is the opportunity of my lifetime i've never seen something like this we should all put pretty much a significant part of our net worth into buying the stock so we all did uh, to the various extents that we uh, that we could and uh, 
Uh, and to his credit, he did as well. Roughly, I think he invested four to five million dollars on that personally. And it went to zero on Monday. So that incident, and in terms of some of the smartest people I have worked with around me and how they reacted, taught me what psychology was, what human emotions were. And the aspect of saying that you're never under control, right? You are taking risk-adjusted bets all the time. Uh, that is what I would carry away all the time. And also understand that when you are dealing with leverage, uh, there is never a one-way stream. Uh, so a lot of things, that event, I can go on and on for the next two hours around it. But if I was to give you one takeaway, I think human emotions, uh, psychology, you could be the best of the best, but the markets will always humble you. And when you deal with leverage, shit happens, right? So these were some big takeaways that I will carry on uh, for the rest of my life. Right. I mean, when you mentioned that, you know, uh, such a prominent person can come out and tell you that this is the best time for us. I remember I started my career in, I think, Jan or Dece December 2019 or Jan 2020. Two months later, the crash happened. And me being naive and not uh, wise enough, I took out all my money from the markets just in two months I'd put in, right? Whatever I could take it out. In hindsight, today, I understand that that was the best time to, you know, top up or put in more money. So, uh, uh, extending that analogy where you have witnessed like the 2008 crash and the 2020 pandemic right so what do you draw from both the crashes the similarities the differences uh you know what have you learned from these two crashes that you would you know in a very brief uh summarize if you have to briefly summarize it how would you put it across so i think the first thing that uh, anyone needs to understand if you were ever investing is you have to invest as an optimist because human race continues to progress come what may, right? The reason you go through crashes is predominantly because of this concept of fear and greed. So I can tell you in the next decade, you will at least see two crashes, at least, right? This is a given. Uh, in the previous decade, you saw four. This decade, I'm optimistic. I'm being an optimist and telling you, you'll see two. So what you will always come out of a crash with the benefit of hindsight saying, I wish I had invested more. But when you enter one, it will feel like doomsday, be it COVID, be it 2008 crash or anyone who's seen the 2000 crash. It's all the same, right? When you are looking at, because why does a crash actually happen? It happens because your starting base is an asset can go only one way, which is up, right? Just rewind yourself uh, a year back and think about everyone that you spoke about digital currency, right? Everyone in India was saying, this can go only one way, which is up, right? People used to lever up, people used to trade and this, it's the same thing. It's human emotion and the concept of greed taking over and the validation that you get when the price is actually reconfirming your bias. So whether it is 2008 or whether it is 2020, the fact remains the same. During difficult times, you have to be unemotional. What that also means is when you make money, you have to be unemotional too, right? It's a part of a process. If making money excites you, then losing money will worry you. It's as simple as that. 
So if you can treat both with equanimity, you are in a good spot. Unfortunately, I think 99% of humans cannot, and which is what you have to fight on a daily basis. So I think it was in January 2017 when you realized that you had all the skill sets and uh, the perfect mindset to, you know, start a fund. But my question is, uh, why did you go ahead and choose India when you had a global exposure or you could have, you know, started something in the international markets? So why choose India at that point of time? See, to be honest, uh, when I left the country back in 2005, right, uh, I was a typical uh, yet another college student who was like, I wanted to leave the country to earn in dollars. Right? And uh, you keep coming back to the country. I think the important thing that uh, we as humans don't realize when you leave the country is you think of the country as the same spot when you left it. Right. So you think that the country doesn't evolve. So you find different ways to reinforce yourself that the country is bad and sitting outside and earning in dollars is a better value proposition for you. And I think having a good spouse, family, all of this brings certain things into context. I think my wife was always very clear that we had to come back to India and our kids had to grow up in India, not outside. And I'm grateful to her for that. The second thing is, I mean, I had managed money for eight years prior. Now, I think I had done a reasonable job of managing money, but I had never raised capital. So I didn't know whether I could come back and do this or not. But uh, the previous fund that I was working in, which was Hachin Hill, wanted me to move to New York. So uh, I was not keen on moving to New York and managing money, investing in India. I, if anything, I wanted to move closer to the home country where I was investing in. And I think people, I'm not a big believer of the fact that you can sit outside India and manage money in India. India, you need to feel the pulse. You need to be doing the due diligence on the ground. This is not a country where you can sit in uh, cushy offices in Dubai and Hong Kong and Tokyo and New York and London and invest. It doesn't make sense to me. So when this incident of moving to New York came about, I had two choices, either move to another fund and do the same thing all over again or come back and set up my own fund. So at that point of time, again, having a stable of family, the decision making around us moving back to India, uh, all of that played. And I felt it if it was not now, at that point of time, it would never. So uh, managing money in India is something that I wanted to do. And the only thing that I didn't know was whether I could raise money. But end of the day, that was a risk that I was willing to take, even if I was going to fail at it, so be it. So uh, once you go back into the drawing board with that kind of a mindset, I think the move became a lot more smoother and it was an obvious choice. Right, right. So as you mentioned, right, that the country keeps evolving. India also as a country has evolved. And in the past few years, we've evolved exponentially. Like just about two months ago, we overtook the UK in terms of GDP. So uh, connecting that with our podcast topic today, like India at 80, like where are we looking at India five years down the line? So what are your views now that you've moved back to India? It's been five or six years you're here and you've invested in the country, not only you started your own firm. 
where do you see india five years down the line considering the amount of growth you are witnessing on a daily basis like on macro i'm asking a macro picture how do you picture india like at 80 so jeremy i will start off by saying i am an optimist right i always believe in the power of humans and i think we will evolve and we will continue to grow roadblocks are going to be the face of every aspect of what we uh, come across in our country and which is why I call our country is always organized chaos, right? If you are not willing to first uh, embrace this concept of organized chaos, India is not for you, right? So don't ever think about saying that we will uh, we will become like the US in the next five years. We will we are on the path of growth, right? And uh, the GDP of our country will grow. Right now, when I say will grow, the GDP should grow at roughly around eight to ten percent compounded. Right, so in the next decade, the three trillion dollars economy that we are in should grow into a six trillion dollars economy. Right, that should happen. Now, the path of that may not be smooth. Now, for us, the now if I was to now uh, uh, the optimist in me tells me this is bound to happen and it will happen. It's a question of whether it is going to be five years or seven years. Now, the caveat that many people also we as fund managers or if you want to be thinking holistically, saying that what should we do better, right? In this entire growth of the last decade, where the GDP has grown by almost 6 to 7% in the last 10 years. It's been a slow decade for us, right? 6 to 7% is actually lower end of the range for our country. The GDP per capita has not grown, right? So what that means is the wealth creation has been at the top, as well as the middle class are actually evolving. But GDP per capita is still at a low base, right? Now, for that to grow, you need policy intervention. Now, if you think about how did China do this? No, no one comments about this. China's evolution actually happened because of a policy change, which was very, very controversial. What was that? In 95, they introduced this one-child policy. Now, why did they do that? Because they wanted to increase the women in the workforce. Now, what happens when you bring a lady into the workforce is the GDP at a family level doubles. Right? Even in India, at this stage, the number of women coming out into the workforce is still too low. There is immense amount of talent out there. But at the same time, we go back to the fact that family first, children first. It's not wrong. But then it's a question of saying the GDP per capita will grow at a much slower pace. So I continue to hold this view that we are a democratic country. Policy change of this stature, like what you saw in China, cannot happen instantaneously. So the GDP per capita will grow at a slower pace, but the GDP will grow at 8 to 10%, which means the wealth effect, the dispersion that you see will continue to exist. Okay, I agree to that. But at the same time, uh, India also has seen a lot of policy changes in the last five years, especially uh, in the second term of our current government, right? So I would say take demonetization, take GST, take uh, PLI schemes that have been introduced that are also aligning well with respect to our growth 
I would con- not concur, uh, uh, you know, 100% that not all of them have panned out as the government, you know, wanted it to be. But at the same time, the uh, intent was there. So how do you think which policy or which particular amendment has made a dent on the Indian economy, be it a positive dent or, a, you know, a little bit of a tilted dent on the economy? And how can we take things ahead from, from the respect of policies? See, I think I keep going back to 2017 as the pivotal year for us, right? The aspect of bringing in demonetization and GST, this is a decadal thing, right? Because what is there again, you're not increasing the GDP per uh, capita out there, but you're increasing the GDP. Why? Because you are bringing money into the formal economy. When you bring money into the formal economy, it has a multiplier effect. When you keep money in the cash economy, it doesn't multiply. It basically, wealth gets destroyed, right? So uh, that was a big, big game changer. Then in order to bring the formal uh, lower tier economy into the organized sector, things like Aadhaar, things like UPI, these are big, big game changers, which are decadal things. Because around this, now you can build the next infrastructure layer. Right. I mean, many people talk about Square or many people talk about Alipay. These are all fintechs. For me, India is the fintech because you have built for the first time an infrastructure layer around which you can actually build for the next 10 years. Right. So be it UPI that you've built or ONDC, which is just a nascent, nascent concept. But all of this will basically democratize access. Now, democratizing access may not be great for capitalism because what that will do is it will take profits and disperse it at scale. But that, again, will grow the GDP. Right? It may not grow the GDP per capita at the same pace, but it will grow the GDP. So all of these have been pivotal moments in terms of our growth. And this has ramifications around how you think about the taxation system. I wish we can simplify our taxation system, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But I I would wait. uh, I would be proud of the fact that if I can file my own taxes. In Hong Kong, I used to file my own taxes. It was very simple. right? I used to know what to file. Here, I don't know. I, I need my CA to file. Right. So CA's job is to add value, not to file taxes. But in our country, CA's job is to file taxes. Right. So I think we we complicate our system. That's what we are known to do. But the first time we are also simplifying things. It will take time, but it will happen. I think you have partially answered my question. So today, when we are talking about the future, we should also look back for that uh, from where we have came. Uh, so I believe that India has aged like fine wine today. Uh, so a fine wine has, you know, four uh, attributes to it, uh, namely acidity, tannin, alcohol and sweetness. So what is that sweetness and the alcohol factor in the Indian economy, having well known that they have their side effects on the on ourselves as well. So what are that major roadblocks which you think that the economy is facing today? See, I think uh, many people need to understand that uh, doing uh, creating a policy for a country like India is like creating a policy for 28 countries, right? Now, uh, you talk to someone from the South 
And then you go to, let's say, a Delhi and talk to someone from Delhi. They're two different people. The cultures are different. The backgrounds are different. The value system is different. So I think uh, people first need to appreciate that. So it's very easy to find fault in anything that policy does or governance does. But the aspect of saying, how have we come out of difficult times tells you that policy is on the right track. How did we come out of COVID so smoothly? Right? But in the middle of COVID, we all complain, right? This is not a problem. There is some amount of chaos in this. I think people should, we are a lot more tolerant of policy outside our country than we are of policy in our country. We are a lot more patient of policy when we go and land up in the US or Singapore or Hong Kong, but we become less tolerant when we come back to India. Why? Because we take our country for granted, right? Now, in terms of what is there to look forward to, if you are running a business, you have a population diversity. Now, I'm not saying you have uh, a billion uh, in terms of your addressable market. I think that's foolish, right? Because even if you take the cream in terms of what you want to address, in terms of, let's say, you want to address a high margin, it's a significant population, right? Even at current GDP per capita level. Now, you need to realize that because of the fact that you're dealing with friction, that's an opportunity. When you think about, you want a completely smooth way of doing business where everything is absolutely taken care of for you, then maybe you're not, you're, you're living in some amount of a dreamland, right? So even when you drink fine wine, not everyone likes the taste of fine wine, right? If you go and drink a Latour, which is a French wine, you will question why the price is. So it's not for all. So I think we have characteristics which will lead to frustration on one side and opportunity on another side. And that is where I think there's a charm of basically doing business in our country, right? There will always be chaos to deal with. But within that chaos, there is growth, right? So I think that is what is the beauty and charm of doing business in our country. I think it's been so well put. I am getting lost into the conversation. But any which way, so you mentioned that it will be frustration on one side and opportunity on the other, right? So being an optimistic and talking around optimism in this pod, in this episode of our podcast, what opportunities are you looking at uh, in the next five years? Like if you are saying that this is the decade for India, like four, three years down the line, four years down the line, for the span of 10 years, what opportunities do you think that India can cash on? Which sectors, which themes are you, you know, uh, do you have high conviction upon if this is the so-called golden decade that, you know, India is coming out of? Sure. So I think uh, if you study any economy's growth, Right. And it really depends on what's your school of thought. Right. Uh, my school of thought is GDP will grow, but GDP per capita will grow at a lower pace. Right. But some people might disagree with me and say we'll grow from a $2,000 to a $4,000 per capita income much faster than what I, I talk about. Now, however, you look at it, any country's growth has been predominantly around the manufacturing growth. You cannot grow as a country without your core manufacturing growth. Be it US in the 70s, 
be it China in the 2000 to 2010 decade or India in the 2020 to 2030 decade, the core of your country's growth has to be around manufacturing. And the reason I'm optimistic for this decade is because certain external factors have aligned itself for the first time, not because we are the most efficient, but because of global forces and because of each country now realizing the value of diversification. And hence, you have to be looking at optimism with core manufacturing as the base. Now, this could be around manufacturing for chemicals. This could be around manufacturing for auto. This could be around manufacturing for uh, core infrastructure-related items or, let's say, uh, something that we are not used to, semiconductor manufacturing. Right Now, around that, there's a whole lot of ancillary industries that would develop. And you will have to look at this entire space with optimism. So you have quite a lot to choose from. Obviously, uh, the story that we are all given right from the late 90s is we are a consumption-driven economy, right? The number of cars will increase, the number of how much of coffee we consume will increase. So you cannot stay away from consumption, right? There is branded consumption growth that will happen in our country be it in terms of luxury watches or be it in terms of gold or be it in terms of food uh, options, be it in terms of travel, which is picking up in an aggressive way because infrastructure is lining up in an aggressive way. So uh, consumption is again going to be a big theme for this decade. And one thing that I would say, which the rest of the market takes for granted is Everyone talks about credit growth as given. I think credit growth is always cyclical. So I think financials are interesting, but they, I would not hold this as a structural theme. I would always think of financials as cyclicals. And uh, financials would be interesting in cycles, but not as something that I would want to own for a, uh, for a decadal uh, theme per se. So I think these three broadly, uh, over and above this, you will get opportunistic things like uh, I think over the next few quarters, uh, IT would again look interesting, uh, right? One year back, IT was the darling. Today, it's hated. And I think end of the day, uh, IT services, there is a demand for it and there is a need for it. Today, no one uh, would acknowledge it because they've not made the returns, but it doesn't mean that it's not a theme that deserves attention. So that again is an interesting theme as far as uh, we're concerned. Uh, so it's uh, since my class seventh that I've been hearing that India is the fastest growing economy and till date I'm listening to it that India is the fastest growing economy. And you have rightly put out the themes that are going uh, might play in the near future that is manufacturing, construction, infra. But uh, uh, given the inflation that is uh, at the highest, uh, which is at 7.41 right now, and I can still feel the heat over here sitting miles away from India. So please, uh, guys us as to how we can beat that uh, uh, figure of 7.41 like uh, how do we beat it or how do we so how does one how does a middle class family park uh, their money sure so i think it is not a middle class upper class lower class right middle class affect, uh, sorry inflation affects everyone but uh, typically the uh, hnis are slightly better prepared than the rest Right, uh, because at the end of the day, when you are running a business, you have potentially an opportunity that you have pricing power as well. Now, the reason when inflation hits 
you want to be owning assets which have pricing power is predominantly this. So in a high inflation economy, if that's what you believe you are in, right? Typically, you should not be owning bonds, right? You should be effectively owning income generating assets, which are what? Real estate. Uh, we should be owning typically gold as a hedge, right? And equities. But time in and time out, you will see money going into FDs. Now, I know a whole bunch of people in the last two years who came into equities predominantly because, not because they believed in equities as an asset class, but because the FD rate was 3.5%, right? And so while I'm optimistic, I think I want to throw some amount of caution in the next six to seven months where I think the bank's FD rate is going to go up and it will go back to 65 to 7% the way I see it. If that's what happens, some amount of retail flows would go back into FDs. That's how we are, right? Is that the right thing to do? Maybe not, but it is going to happen. Why? Because we still look for security and safety of that six and a half, seven percent 7%. So end of the day, money flows are cyclical in nature. It keeps it, it keeps happening in cycles, though the kind of volumes of SIP money and the volumes of money that is coming from DIS is extremely robust. This is a risk in the near term. Having said that, what do you do in a high inflation economy? You basically look for businesses which have pricing power, which are able to raise prices and maintain their market share. So equities as a broad asset class is not that. But businesses which have this characteristic should do a lot better than other businesses. Typically, I wouldn't say this, but you also should look at real estate because they are income generating assets in a high inflationary economy. That's not a bad asset class also to look at, though in the last 10 years, predominantly you've made zero returns. Right? So end of the day, the assets that generate income that can protect your value and grow is what you need to be investing in, which effectively means equities do figure in into that broader scheme of things. I think to summarize what you just said, I think it's just basically everyone has to figure out a way how to get their money, make money for them, basically. The crux is that at the end of the day. And I think that informed decision or informed investing decisions is what someone uh, pe uh, people need to figure that out today. Uh, well, on that note, uh, Naveen, if you don't mind, we'll start with the rapid fire round to conclude this. Sure, sure. absolutely. Yeah, sure. So I'll just begin. Uh, I'll start with the podcast word only. So India. Growth. Recession. Thing of the past. RBI. The most stable in the central bank. GDP per capita. On the uptick. Cash flows. Central to investing. Equities. Lifelong ownership. Growth. The future. 2008. Pivotal moment. 
the last one from my side, Iris Capital. Stand for growth. And the last one from my side is Naveen. Simple for stability. Super, super. I think uh, we had a great, great conversation. Uh, to sum it up for our listeners, so we we talked about India, uh, the from how, where we've come to where we stand today and how long we we are yet to grow. Grow. In the words of Mr. Naveen, uh, we are a chaotic country, but growth emerges out of chaos. So we have to look. We have to be optimistic, and we have to look ahead for the bright times ahead. And uh, yeah, look out for the opportunities and focus on them as far as you can. And uh, GDP per capita shall grow and India shall emerge as a, a star in this decade. So uh, that's to wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Mr. Naveen, for doing this for us. Uh, we are honored and we are uh, absolutely delighted to have had this conversation with you. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks thank for you. all of this and thanks for putting me in the spot. Appreciate this. Thank you so much for being a part of our platform. Thanks, Darshan.